things started to go into a tunnel and I started to like fall down and it was just, it was over. I felt myself dying. I thought I, thought I was dying uh, and I was. Welcome to The Depression Files, where you'll hear interviews of men who have struggled with depression. We talk about everything related to mental health, from depression and other mental illnesses, to medication, to suicide awareness and prevention, to our current mental health system, and of course, to the stigma that surrounds mental illnesses. I believe that sharing stories is one of the best ways to chip away at the stigma. I also believe that sharing stories helps to educate those who may know little about mental illnesses while giving hope to those who may be suffering. I'm your host, Al Levin, and I want to thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to The Depression Files. This is Al Levin, your host. Tonight on the air, I'm really excited. We have Logan Lynn. Logan is an American musician, writer, composer, singer, producer, a mental health advocate, an LGBT activist, a filmmaker, and a TV personality. Logan, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. I really appreciate you taking time out of your day to interview. I think um, a person with that many titles after their name must be a pretty busy dude. (laughs) Yeah, I'll give you busy for sure. (laughs) (laughs) But busy is a good thing, right? It is absolutely a good thing. Uh, At least in in my case, it's been positive. Yeah, that's awesome. So, you know, really this uh, show is about mental health and I think your first run-in with any kind of mental health started at a pretty young age. So so I'd love to to start, you know, right off the bat with what happened at a young age. When did it happen? And yeah, let's start with that. Yeah, well, I mean, I, you know, I grew up in a really fundamentalist Christian home. Uh, therapy was not, uh, something that I had even heard of. Uh, mental health was not something that was on my radar ever, much less when I was really young. Um, and you know, every, everything we had sort of available, uh, all the tools I had available to me to help my brain or help me function in the world, um, were like prayer. Um, and so when I was seven, uh, I was injured, I think spiritually, but I was, um, sexually assaulted molested repeatedly by a family friend and, you know, didn't have words to explain what had happened to me, didn't have any sort of um, way to do, to express that I needed help. Uh, and, and so I internalized all of that. Um, and it was, it was okay. You know, I had some behavioral changes that happened around seven to nine while that was all going on. My family certainly would have noticed that. Um, but things were still on the rails uh, up until right about high school when my hormones kicked in and, and I started, um, you know, feeling gay, uh, uh, started seeing a boy and, and I got really depressed. That was the first time where depression kind of took hold. Okay. I felt. Yeah. Felt so the- before we move on to the depression piece, while you were dealing with sexual abuse, which I'm so sorry to hear about, like that sounds incredibly traumatic obviously and dealing with it for two years straight did your family have any idea uh they knew that something was going on with me but they didn't know what and and i had you know in the midst of my being hurt it was all wrapped up in spirituality so i would be injured by this man and then really told that if i let on 
uh, to anyone, much less my family, but to anyone that we would all go to hell. And I, at that point, my little brain just really didn't understand anything but heaven and hell. And so I, I believed him, uh, and I kept it a secret. There were some physical things that happened that I was able to, um, hide, uh, and ultimately the spiritual damage occurred, but, but sort of showed up later. The mental health trauma response, um, happened later in that it was noticeable later. What happened at the time was I just completely dissociated. So as it was happening, I convinced myself or my, my lovely, you know, smart, beautiful brain convinced itself that I was a character on this 80s TV show, Kids Incorporated. I really believed that. I really um, escaped into the idea that I was a star on this show. And so when bad things would happen to me, um, they were very episodic. It, it was like um, uh, something that was happening to the character. Uh, and when we moved out of that town, I mean, I straight up told everybody I was going to go be on Kids Incorporated. Like it was like not a joke. It was not a fantasy. I really, really believed that. Um, and that saved me in a lot of ways while things were happening. I think my parents thought I was weird and eccentric and, and obsessed with Tiffany and Debbie Gibson and, and this TV show, <laughs> but they didn't have also the language to say, wow, this is really peculiar, the level of obsession. And do you think he really does think he's on this TV show? My dissociation was mixed with pop culture in a way where it was palatable. Wow. That's incredible. And so even at age seven, you knew that what was happening was not okay, not normal. Yet he put the fear of God literally in you to keep that quiet. Yeah. And I guess I didn't, I would say that I don't know that I did know that it wasn't normal. I, I was so young and, and I was so wrapped up in the experience that while my brain was doing things to protect me, like dissociation, um, I kind of felt like probably everybody knew that was part of it, right? Like people already know um, if you tell anyone, we'll all go to hell, but everybody in the house already knows, right? Like it was like a weird thing that as an adult, even those tricks wouldn't work on me. Like none of it actually makes sense. But as a child, it, it really did um, keep me really wrapped up. And, and I, you know, I, I felt um, scared to say anything, but I also kind of assumed that this was what happened, what happens to kids, what was happening to everybody, what all adults did. It was, um, it was normal enough in my life for whatever reason that um, I never had an emergency where I um, told any other adults. Right. And, you know, shit, it's tough for me to just even hear it. I feel so, so much for you and what you've been through. So for two years this happened, was this individual living with your family? And how would they be able to to get away with it? Did your parents sure. not realize they were in the room? Were your folks always gone when that happened? Yeah, the, we were babysat by this man a lot, uh, my brother and I, and, and I spared my brother a lot of uh, all of this. Actually, he was five years younger and never um, was injured in this way. Um, but I did take on a lot of that. So we were, you know, it happened when when we were being babysat. He moved in at a certain point um, and lived there for a term or two. I, you know, I'm young, so I don't really remember exactly how long he lived there. But he was integrated into our family and, and was integrated later on. Again, my dad hired him later 
uh, when I was a teenager and, and he re-entered our lives uh, for a brief period of time. But I think it's easy to get lost in the shuffle when you have um, sort of an annoying behavioral health challenge. Like uh, I presented as being problematic. I was a problematic child. I was difficult. I was, I needed the air conditioner on at night. I screamed about things that didn't make sense. You know, like that was how it presented. And so it wasn't easy to tell what was going on with me. It certainly, they would have never thought that this man who had groomed them and, and had worked his way into our family so closely would have ever done anything but help our family. So I think it's a pretty classic case, actually. Like, I, I wish it was less common, but um, when we've gone back in time as a family and looked at it, um, it's it's pretty textbook around how he got in, how, how he kept me quiet, how he um, sort of avoided getting in trouble and, and how I internalized it all. Right. Uh, just, it's so tragic. Did, uh, when and how did the family find this out eventually? Well, I started using drugs really early on. So my behavior, we moved my, so the man was taken out of my life. We moved without anybody getting in any trouble or anything, but, um, moved and my behavioral health stuff started getting worse. Um, I was acting out worse. Um, by the time I was 12, they put me in a private Christian school and I met older boys who gave me drugs and it was, I was off and running then, right? Like I, once I realized I could medicate myself through this experience or around the experience, uh, I, I didn't stop that for 16 years. Well, it was a huge escape for you. I'm sure. Right. Holding all this in and finally having an escape and a way to get out of it. What kind totally. of drugs were you abusing at that age? Yeah. So I started at 12, you know, I think I messed around with like, oh, Benadryl makes me fall asleep. Cool. And then once I was around alcohol at a friend's house, I drank and that was like home. And, you know, it just sort of progressed. By the time I got to the parochial school, um, I met some really bad high school boys that thought it was funny to give me LSD and I took acid and, and in that moment realized that I was gay and that all of this stuff had been a lie. And, you know, my brain kind of changed again in a way. And um, and I think there was some of that that was really positive. Like I was able to time machine my experience and look at some things chemically that I would not have been able to look at certainly faster. The, you know, that that the drugs took the <laughs> the blinders off much quicker, but I wasn't prepared for any of that information. And so, you know, it was a lot to see and then try to unsee. Um, but I, I moved very quickly from psychedelics into, uh, MDMA. And, and so I, you know, I, I felt sort of felt things in a different way. And then I realized that if I did cocaine, I didn't have to feel or look <laughs> any of the stuff that psychedelics or MDMA or any of that had brought. Uh, to help deal with the experience, uh, cocaine took me all the way out of the experience. And so once I met that sort of magic cocaine alcohol mixture, I never stopped. Uh, and the only time I stopped was in 2007 when my nose started to collapse and I wasn't able to get cocaine up there anymore. I just started smoking it. So I, I started um, freebasing, smoking crack. And that was really the end of the end. Uh, I had a in 2008, uh, suffered a partial stroke that landed me in the hospital. And, and I was in and out of the hospital uh, that year. Once I finally, I had gone to rehab 16 times. I had never taken before. 
um, during that 16 year period, uh, lots of overdoses, lots of near death experiences, lots of trauma. Um, but this last time my body like almost gave way and, and for whatever reason I met the right doctor who was a trauma informed doctor and, and I landed in just randomly in a dual diagnosis rehab for the first time instead of these straight up drug rehabs that were just about treating my symptoms and, and I got caught, right? Like they caught me in the net finally and I um, got the services I needed and I got the attention I needed and I had resources finally because I was a musician and I could pay to have a team of doctors and focus on that for a year and really go back in time and try to heal. Right. You know, I, that is a, a lot, uh, a lot that you've been through. You know, I think my original question was how did your family find out about this, this man in your life? Their fan, their friend. Right. Their so-called yeah. Friend. That was a, that was a long way of getting there, <laughs> but I don't think we quite got there yet. No, and I don't know that we're there in the story yet. Okay, <laughs> no, all right. I, you know, we are. We totally are. I, <laughs> my parents, <laughs> my parents came to visit me uh, in San Francisco in 1999. Uh, I got very drunk at dinner. Uh, they left, went back to their hotel, and I wrote them an email and told them everything. And I believe they were on their way home, maybe when we talked about it, or they, you know, they called me once they had gotten home, and and they swiftly. Um, took action around removing this man from our lives. Uh, but I, I very clearly did not want to, having spent the first half of my life trying to survive this, uh, reintroduce a survival, uh, a need for surviving it again. Like I, I, had, I was personally interested in moving past it and wanted them to understand what had happened, A, so that they had shared language with me around my recovery because it was not looking like what it actually was. Um, I wanted the drug addiction to make sense to them, and so I felt like they deserved that information. I wasn't really getting well at that time, you know, so it was more just about, you know, I'm trying to get over this. Like, I, I am saying I'm trying to get well, and I really am. I realize I'm not quitting drugs at all but but this is what's happened to me and and they removed him from from their life as had i many years ago uh and we started trying to put the pieces back together as a family um i you know i he has tried to make contact with us several times throughout the years uh i've, I've certainly he's a person that we block all of our people know but he he never went to jail or anything and and uh, I think that's been an interesting life pattern to have this sort of predatory experience in our, you know, a, attack our family early on um, and then still just kind of live with that. And I don't I don't I know that's common. I know that a lot of people live with that and and, and have to see their attackers and, and and feel like they're sharing world space with the people that hurt them. Um and for me and, and for my family, uh, it was a decision that we made to try to move together through the rest of our life um, instead of fight together for the rest of time. Um, and I, I sometimes regret that. I sometimes change my mind about that. I think if I were to die, I actually know if I were to die, that my parents would take an absolutely different track with that. Right. Um, but that's how they found out. That's that's how we started putting our family back together. 
um, was sort of centering it around the truth of what had happened and, and trying to rebuild. Uh, I also um, had some forgiving I needed to do. They had some forgiving they needed to do. It has not been an easy process, but you know, certainly when I stopped using drugs in 2008, which will be 12 years ago in March, um, we were able to come together in a way, you know, even the truth, the, the truth had happened many years before the healing actually probably didn't start and the, the reconnecting probably didn't start until, um, I stopped being a crackhead. Right. Well, it's a pretty incredible path and it sounds like you've got some incredibly loving parents. Uh, I've heard stories of people whose families, you know, don't necessarily believe them. Like that's impossible. This person is so great. And to hear that they immediately disconnected from the person and started to looking at how to rebuild and how to, to forgive and ask forgiveness themselves. It sounds like a definitely a caring, solid, tight family. For sure. Yeah. I think what they've done, which I didn't, I don't know if this was a strategy or not. It probably was what they've been able to do is really show up for me as an adult in the ways that I needed uh, them to show up as a child. You know, it wasn't their fault. He, he really fooled all of them as well. Um, but I know there's a feeling experience there just as the parents of a child who has that happened to them of like, Oh my God, how did we let this happen? And so part of our process has been me forgiving that sentiment me being at an age where I understand that they were kids when all of this was happening around them. Um, that's also been a real sort of key to compassion. Uh, and, and then us just like loving each other in the truth. I also believe that the church system we were in at the time didn't really set them up to ask questions, didn't, didn't set them up to do much of anything, but have faith that the people we were around were godly people. And, and I just think, you know, if we could all do it over again, every single one of us would obviously take a different approach. Right, right. Well, and like you said it yourself, right, if you were to pass away, God forbid, they may take a different path. And from that statement, I took you saying they may just go after him. Yeah, I think, you know, I struggle with suicidal ideation. I, I struggle with this persist, persistent mental health condition and depression and, 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 and I've gotten myself to a place where I'm really stable and I'm, I'm really happy and I'm really able to function in the world. And I think everybody wants to protect that, you know, right. myself included. Um, but I think if that weren't a factor, uh, it would be a really tough sell to, to my entire family. Yeah. 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 And that again shows their passion and love for you, I think, because really they want to move forward in a way that helps you heal and get through it rather than go with the emotions of, you know, we've got to make sure this guy serves time and whatnot. Yeah. Um, Wow. That that, stuff's hard to prove too, you know? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And you'd be on the stand and and it would be his word against your word a lot of times and your memory from age seven. Just terrible. Like I, I just, for me, that's not the picture of my life. I would much rather him be listening to this, be so scared of me being a public person forever, have my parents have him on blast. Just everybody's got him on blast. I just would rather that than somehow try to prove my integrity after I've lived this life that hasn't been all that. 
all that filled with integrity, you know, as a result, as a result of my being hurt. So it is a chicken and the egg thing, but, but I think all that factored in back then, especially in 1999 when it would have been time to potentially rise up and do that. It was a different time in the world. Right. And I was, I was a different person. So, yeah. So you mentioned that you acknowledged uh, and recognized that you were gay. I think you said age 14. Yeah, that was when I first said it out loud to my parents. And that was what I was going to ask. Like, when did you when do you think you realized it or had inclination that that you might be gay? And how long did you wait before sharing it? Yeah, well, I started when my hormones kicked in and I went to high school. I did meet a boy and I started seeing him. I was 14 uh, and I, you know, I got really depressed. I think that's when my first suicidal ideation really set in because the feelings I was feeling, even though what I had experienced before was absolutely violence, it was sexual violence. And so as I started feeling sexually attracted to men, it really triggered me. It brought up all sorts of weird shit. And I was seeing this boy. I was depressed. I wouldn't leave my house. I wouldn't leave my room. I wouldn't go to school. My parents took me to see a Christian therapist that they knew from our church. And during the course of that therapy session, I, I came out to him. I told him that I was having this relationship with my boyfriend who I'd been seeing for a while. I wanted advice. And instead, he outed me to my parents during that session. And because my boyfriend had just turned 18, he said he was going to call the police and put that guy in jail. So my parents made some deal where, um, you know, as we as we left, I, I tried to exit the car as it was on the freeway. My dad was able to hold on to me and get us to safety. But that was the first time I had tried to take my life. I think my parents knew that if if my boyfriend got in trouble, that that was the inevitable next step. If the school found out that that all of this was happening, that was the inevitable next step. So, so they made a deal with their family friends in Tennessee that if I were to leave the community that night and go live with their friends, that this therapist wouldn't get this boy in trouble and and we removed me from the situation and so there's no reason to arrest his boyfriend and and thus save save my life was the thinking but you know they sent me to jackson tennessee which is a rural town super racist super homophobic um and i was there for a few months and by the time i came home i was a full-blown drug addict It, it really didn't end up working it did keep my boyfriend safe it did um sort of buy us some time uh but it it definitely separated me from my family separated me from my friends and uh really introduced me to unsupervised drug use wow how long were you away from your folks then less than a year it was you know it was a semester probably i know high school is not done in semesters but it was it was like not that long was you know four or five months but but long enough to really get into trouble long enough to take on this idea that they've sent me away because i'm gay right even though that wasn't that was like not the deal i i I know now that's not what happened they actually were saving me and, and trying to save my boyfriend but but it felt like this man told them i was gay and then i'm in tennessee Oh, I think and, at that age, how could you think anything else? Yeah. But they're right. banishing me, banishing me as the gay child. 
And and then did they also, I don't even know the history of like conversion therapy, but did they talk about conversion therapy or we've got to make sure you stop these gay tendencies? Um, How did your parents react to the gay part of this whole Nobody talked about it. No, we didn't talk about it. They just sent me to Tennessee. Uh, You know, I think that there was the big fear that 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 was the information that was going to make me kill myself or something. And so it really did... I know that nobody was trying to make me feel shame, but the mixture of sending me away and then nobody speaking about it was really intense. And I was adamant that I wasn't right. You know, like I was also mortified, confused, feeling very old feelings that were mixed with new positive feelings. It was just a mess, but, but nobody talked about it. And, and when I got back, I still didn't talk about it but I was angry and I was drunk and I was trying to medicate myself through the rest of high school. They, they moved us that same year. So I got back and within six months we moved to Kansas city and I came out to them shortly after. Came out to your parents. Yeah. I just was like, I'm gay for sure. Uh, and then, uh, that was that we, you know, we started a process of me, being trying to be open and have a relationship with them. They were still in the church. Uh, they were trying, I believe to have a relationship with me, but it was scary cause I was a drug addict. Oh, so it's right. like whether or not they were having a reaction or kicking me out of the house, or, you know, any of the times that that happened because I was gay or because I was a scary drug addict who was stealing from them. Like it's hard to know. It's hard to separate those. I believe them that they kicked me out because I was a scary drug addict, but my little brain at the time really couldn't tell. And I think I took on that trauma. And so some of the stuff that we worked through as a family in these years since has been perceived grievances on my behalf. Like the whole thing was such a mess. We just kind of have had to broadly forgive each other and um, assume that what we're telling each other now is the truth. And I, I believe that it is. I have a hard time remembering a lot of those years. And I would imagine that they have a hard time relating to themselves during a lot of those years. So, you know, we're doing the best we can now. But it was also the 90s. Like, right. it was totally a different world. Yeah, absolutely. There was therapy options for family. There was the only gay character I had ever seen was like that a murderer at the end of silence of the lambs. Like it was like so intense, like lack of representation that even I didn't have a sort of cultural touch point for what I was. And so this was probably about age 15, 16 still. Yeah, I think I got, I was probably 15. I moved to Portland when I was 16. Okay. So and at this point, they still didn't know about the abuse you had suffered from as well, right? No, they just thought I was a crazy yeah. gay drug addict. Right, right. Oh, my goodness. And in the meantime, your traumas are just piling on. And like you said, yeah. and like you said, and I want to just keep it in, in perspective as well, like you're dealing with all of this trauma that you are keeping to yourself still around being abused by a man as you're experiencing first time, you know, sexuality with boys because you know you're gay. Yeah. And I would say with men. So I went straight as once I'm in Portland, I, for whatever reason, took on the identity of I'm an adult. Now everybody just needs to treat me like an adult. 
I, you know, I sort of started reenacting my trauma and, and over and over I did that over and over. And, and so there was never the chance to heal because I, the only way I could feel was sort of putting myself in the similar or, or identical, um, a sort of, uh, predatory situations where I would be hurt. And, you know, I also, as a drug addict, I, w- I experienced housing insecurity. I was homeless in the streets of Portland at times. And, um, bad things happen to you when you're homeless, bad things happen to you when you're trying to survive. So there was never a time where I could catch my breath. You were homeless as a teen in Portland? Off and on, yeah. And I would say houseless because I, you know, there were very few nights where I was really on the street. Right. I was in uh, on other people's couches. I was kicked out of my home but managed to find my way uh, home with a man. I, You know, I, I had very few super scary I'm going to freeze to death nights but I did have those and there were a couple of times where I walked to my parents house uh, in the middle of the night because I just was going to die right wow and so you were still in high school at the time and like you said you weren't you were going to school sometimes not always no when I well like high school sort of ended around age 16 I was done uh, I took my GED. I was so tortured in high school from the bullies. Like it was actually no better. So took my GED, just started working and, you know, had a really hard time staying in jobs. I, I've worked every single place that you can name in Portland in the, the late 90s for a few months and then would get fired. So give us a, an idea of your most interesting short gig in Portland. Well, it's hard to say interesting because it's all really <laughs> stupid and sad. But one of my more epic firings, uh, I was working at a toy store greeting card place up on Northwest 23rd Avenue in Portland and um, woke up at one point um, because I had nodded off and customers were leaving money by my face <laughs> on the counter and taking their products and, and the book. You know, I got fired and I got fired from everywhere for doing pretty similar things and and being really confused about why people were upset about it. And and you were still using and, and addicted at this oh, point. Oh, yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. I definitely wasn't just sleepy. <laughs> right. <laughs> I was I was for sure using and, and actively proud about it. You know, I, the thing that happened when I got here was I met. Elliot Smith and Zia McCabe from the Dandy Warhols and Dan Reed, all these indie rock, rock and rollers who had yet to become famous before the Portland scene really took off. And and I was young and I could sing and I had songs that were weird. And I was like a young teenager doing hard drugs and everybody thought that was hilarious for whatever reason. And so I really fell into this Portland music scene early on. And that replaced any idea of school pretty quickly uh, and and really gave me the opportunity to mess up uh, really publicly. Yeah, give us a sense of just how you broke into this uh, the industry of all the music, and was it through these these guys you mentioned that allowed yeah. you to get into the music scene, or what was your kind of break? Yeah, so I had written a bunch of songs in 1997, right after I got to Portland, uh, sort of techno meets uh folk 
music. It was super weird at the time. There was no cultural reference point for it, which I think made me stand out. And like I said, I was like actively partying with all these people that had just gotten record deals. So um, I got a pass to go into the studio and made my debut album that then didn't go anywhere because I was too afraid to perform on stage and too high to do any interviews. And it was a thing. Uh, but but that that first record did end up finding its way places. Uh, and then five years later, a band called The Postal Service put out a record, which was dance music, electropop, sort of sad songs to happy beats. And suddenly people rediscovered my earlier work. Uh, I got signed to EMI Caroline Records at that point, uh, got a major label deal. Uh, and released that, you know, I was singing about my addiction. I was singing about abuse. I was writing songs about my struggle and people monetized it. People found value in that. That was celebrated. The fact that I was a party boy was celebrated. The fact that my videos were super disturbing landed me a contract with MTV artist development. And I've had eight of my videos on logo during the early aughts and and was, you know, given a show where I spoke to 26,000 people every week, but all during that I was really hurting and I, and I was using, and I, it was like, I felt that, that what I, I think what I was chasing was fame or, or success. And what I needed to be chasing was wellness. So as I grew um, more and more popular uh, during, you know, especially 2007, six and seven, I started doing more and more drugs and, and started staying out later and doing just, I was off the rails at a certain point where I couldn't even finish my record. So I took my advance that I had been given to do that, that record. And I put myself in rehab which was not popular with the label. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> was that your first go at uh, rehab? No, that was just the first time where I, it had really taken and I wasn't there by accident. I was scared that I was going to really die. And, and it, it was the first time I had a major label deal in rehab. It was the first time I had something <laughs> to live for. You know, like it, it was the first time my life had suddenly started to really work professionally everyone was looking at me people were celebrating me and i was gonna lose it all either way i was gonna lose it if i went and got well or i was gonna lose it if i died and so i just chose not to die yeah and how long were you in rehab at that point that was the long one that was the final one that was the one that that took so i was in detox for a few weeks i was in inpatient for a month and a half and then I was in outpatient for over a year. Um, and, and I, you know, that was when I finally met a trauma informed doctor who was like, what has happened to you? We were able to really work on that. I also, you know, got hip to harm reduction at that point where the guy was like, how about this? How about we get you off crack by using cocaine? And I was like, what? And I was like, holy shit, I can do that. And so I did that. Right. So there was three months where I didn't have to quit doing coke. I just had to not smoke it. And from there, he was like, okay, now we've got you on Coke. We would like to give you naltrexone, which is going to take away your cocaine cravings. Did that, and I started on, you know, it was just the process. But so I, I literally, using the, using Coke was a part of your rehab? A hundred percent. Wow, I've never I heard of that. So ad- I was so addicted. Well, nobody's going to tell you to do that. I met a doctor who worked with me outside of the system. So gotcha. to, 
see where I was at. So, so, you know, harm reduction is just now starting to happen 10 years later. But back then it was cutting edge science. And I think it's common sense. He, he knew abstinence wasn't an option for me right then, right? You can't go from crackhead to zero. Right. Many people try. I would love to see their success rates. I was able to through this is going to be less harmful, you know, through quarterly sort of pulling back. I did it then with cigarettes also. Like I didn't actually have to quit smoking. I went to the Nicotrol inhaler and did that. And then I was gum. And then, you know, like it was years and years. But it but it was not ever a thing where if I relapsed, I relapsed all the way back to the original thing. I, you know, I, I was gradually taking things off, gradually rewiring my addiction and, and slowly taking it out. Um, and it did it did end up working. I, you know, AA, the 12 steps, none of that ever took for me because of my religious trauma. And just I don't know why. But 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 no one had ever offered me sort of a gradual step down met with medication assistance. I I just had never had anyone say, you're your own healthcare advocate. Here's what might work for you. Do this. You can still come to therapy, but like do something. Don't, don't just be all or nothing. Let's go slow for the next three months. You're going to do this and then we're going to reassess. And it, it was so smart. And I wish there was a way to, have everyone have that option. Everyone should be able to have doctors meet them where they're at and say, hey, let's figure out what success looks like for you so that we can get you to a place where you're stable, where therapies will take. I think it sounds fantastic. And, you know, like you said, 12 years sober now, right? So that's fantastic. And congratulations on that, by the way. Thank you. Thank um, you. And it makes me think, I know it's completely different, different topic but same with meds right like a lot of times if they want you off of something they're going to wean you and you work with your doctor on a weaning process and it sounds pretty similar you take your hardest most hardcore drug and we're going to get you off that first and wean you off of that even if you're still using something else and just gradually wean you and clearly at least in your case it it completely worked here we are 12 years later yeah, it worked. I think what would be awesome is if things were decriminalized where those drugs that I was taking during the weaning could have been safe and regulated. Right, right. You and know, there's like a big it, conversation around the psychedelics now for that, too. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm I am not a person who identifies as being super pro-drug, but I am super pro-common sense. And, and if you are in a situation like I was in, you're not going to get yourself out of that right away. You have to do something that's going to work. And so I, I guess my advice for anybody listening who is having a similar situation would be to not set yourself up to fail. If you've tried something over and over and it's not working, try something new. Get different advice. You know, go slow. But but don't just sit there and accept that you're done. Like that, you know, you can always do better. And and I did better very slowly over time. And now it's been a significant amount of time. Oh, and, and in the long run, like how incredible is that? Uh, And like you said, it doesn't have to be all or nothing to be expected to be such a hardcore addict and that tomorrow we're going to have you just cold Turkey. You're going to be done and it's going to be great. Like 
that's not all not that happening yeah well and like hello i was using for a reason so right. like you take you take my medication away and at that point my medication was crack cocaine all day long uh those feelings and experiences are going to present plus i was in like a cocaine psychosis that needed to be rolled back right like it was just um it was important that i feel that i could have my crutches uh, for as long as I needed them, even though I was in a process of letting them go. Right, right. And originally you had mentioned that it was a dual diagnosis program. Can you talk a bit more about that? So I'm envisioning you're getting some therapy and they're dealing with the mental health aspect while also um, working on the addiction. Yeah, that was a really accurate vision that you had. It was um, it was part drug addiction. So I went in, you know, treated my detox symptoms but the moment I was able to focus, I started therapy. And, and that's different than the rehabs I had had before where it was like a milieu setting and it was very focused on my having used. This was much more about what's got you? Why are you hurting? Who, got, who hurt you? What, what has happened to you? All these questions that actually no one had ever asked me before. Wow. And were you open to answering those honestly in the beginning? Hell no. Right, right, right. So, <laughs> so, so was that a barrier to your recovery, not being honest? Well, uh, not wanting to look at things was a barrier for my recovery. Uh, not wanting to feel things was a barrier for my recovery. I came out pretty honest. You know, I was, I was, uh, the honesty part was okay, but the honesty and having to actually feel the thing I'm talking about was a total deal breaker. So, um, you know, I, I did things during that first uh, year of therapy to make it better. I was, I was medicated. I, I, I did things uh, that were not for forever so that I could face things. You know, I took some antipsychotic medicine because the PTSD symptoms I would have when I was talking about the stuff that had happened to me even later in life, just as I was struggling as a drug addict, um, were too much to where I would lose focus. I could, it wasn't therapeutic at a certain point. So, right. um, yeah, I definitely, I definitely had to go slow. I, I had to, uh, not look at everything all at once, but the honesty wasn't a struggle. The, I was always screaming about who I was. I, I was always honest about that. I just, didn't know what to do with it. And one of the things I've heard about most dual diagnosis programs is they really have to make sure that your uh, addiction is addressed first and that your system is clean to know really like which part of this is the drugs, which part of this is the mental health piece. Uh, is that how totally. you experienced it as well? You had to get clean really first? Yeah, I had a detox for the first few weeks uh, and then that was sort of met with a milieu but a milieu of people who had already been detoxed and and sort of all different all different conditions I, I was in there with gambling addicts I was in there with people who were in recovery from sexual assault uh, so all of that exposure to people um, who were trying to get well I do think helped me look at my own stuff even if I was looking at their stuff, you know, it was like, right. um, it was part of it. And, and that was part of the magic of this place was the pairing, um, of traumas within the milieu was the, the pairing of my therapy with 
um, my own wellness plan. Like I really, it was the first time where, where I had anybody say, you are in charge of whether or not you live or die. And, and I needed that. I needed to feel like I was in control after so many years of not being in control and not feeling any sense of, of being in charge of my life. I needed somebody to hand me back the keys. Right. And so this was the rehab after you had mentioned that you experienced a stroke. It was not quite a stroke. Okay. It was a TIA, um, which is pre-stroke, where um, I had almost stroke symptoms. And if I hadn't called 911, I would have definitely had a stroke. So Take, take us um, through that I, experience. How, how did you yeah, know something was going on? Well, you know when you're going to have a stroke. <laughs> I, I don't know. I had never I've never been before. close, so I have no idea, yeah, actually. I, I don't know how to describe it. It's, I feel like, you know, things started to go into a tunnel and I started to like fall down and it was just, it was over. I felt myself dying. I thought, I thought I was dying. Right. Uh, and I was, so, and, you know, I, I called 911 barely could get, I was in and out of consciousness as I remember it. Um, and I remember my Pomeranian at the time really barking at me, barking, waking me up and, I think he probably saved my life, actually, the dog. Um, but that happened right before Christmas. I uh, kind of ruined Christmas that year. Uh, it was a vivid memory of you know having people right. come to my house with presents. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I didn't really know where I was going to go. I had, I had um, you know, landed in the hospital. I was, I was released and needed to get into a facility, but there was a waiting list. And I, I really just kept myself sedated for probably three or four weeks in between the time where I was released from the health scare to the time that I was admitted to rehab. Okay. And did you have any lasting permanent effects from the pre-stroke? I do. Yeah. Yeah. In, in what yeah, way? My, Is it speech or movement? Uh, my mouth is a little crooked. My um, smile is a little crooked on the left side. It goes down. I have a beard, so you can't always really see it, but I, it's noticeable to me. I have had several bouts of just absolute terror uh, where the the feeling that was happening during that moment happens to me again. It's, it's, it's totally just panic. It's It's like a flashback. It's not... Um, actually happening to me, but that is a lasting thing. I have uh, deviated septum in my nose and my sinuses are fused shut. So I breathe through the hole in my face, which every time I breathe, I uh, hear a little bit of a whistle. And uh, it's a reminder of all of that constantly. Um, I, you know, a lot of the stuff that I deal with is more around my brain. Right. Uh, I think, you know, I spent so many years in cocaine psychosis that uh, it turned into sort of real psychosis at times. I, you know, I'm now well, and I'm I'm actually not medicated. Uh, I'm I've uh, gotten off all of my prescriptions over over the years, and and use medical marijuana, CBD oil as needed, uh, which has really helped for me. For me, it was never my drug of choice, so it's been a good uh, good uh, therapy for me, but. I, I have a lot of residual panic, a lot of residual uh, PTSD. I, I lived in PTSD for so long, right? Like there was 
my entire existence was tra- was trauma. So um, that that has a lasting effect that I believe also is physiological. So you know, I try to take care of myself. I, I put myself through so much, and and my I was put through so much even outside of myself that um, as those physiological things happen, I try not to beat myself up as my nose whistles at me. I try not to feel deep shame. Uh, as I, I wake up in the night, I try to just remember that um, I'm safe. I'm here. I'm safe. I fought for this life and, and it's okay. There are just some remnants, uh, but it's still very present for me. The trip of it all is like, I'm so normal that I have like this whole career that's normal. I, I work with <laughs> In charity world that's totally normal i interact with people all day long in very normal human alive ways um and and people i think would have a hard time unless you saw me and knew me back then folks have a really hard time picturing this they, yeah. they can't they actually can't picture me acting like a drunken crackhead um and luckily <laughs> there's plenty of video so you know I, i'm able to <laughs> pull that stuff up but but i uh i think that's also a trip right like i i have to just accept that i'm well enough now that my shit's invisible and it's on me to say it If, if i'm struggling i actually have to say that that the reason i started sweating profusely is because of the feeling experience i'm not hot Right, right, right. (laughs) That's on me. Yeah, so another piece you mentioned was living with persistent suicidal ideation. Is that something that that still you live with? Uh, Yeah, I think that's the main thing. And I don't think that's about me wanting to die at this point. I I don't think it ever was, actually. I think it's about me not wanting to have these feelings, me wanting it to stop. And so that's really changed, you know, like before I was in active trauma all the time and and had a compulsion to make it stop, a compulsion to hurt myself, to take myself out of that experience. I'm not really in a 24 hour experience anymore, but I still think about it. And, And it's like in my head, it's not like I think about it, like I'm considering hurting myself, but, but I think about driving the car off of the bridge when I'm on the bridge every time and so it's not like i'm like compelled to drive my car off the bridge but as i'm on the bridge i do i do think well i could drive off into the river and that's an option right. and it's like that i think that's that's how mine presents now is like there's not really a need to hide the knives but i'm aware that the knives are there Mm-hmm. And uh, I have a process where I think about the knives and I put them back where they belong, right? I, I, my whole thing, come to find out, was actually it, completely managed by uh, impulse control. And so had I early on been given over to skills trainer therapy uh, to sort of uh, build my impulse control skill set, uh, I would have saved myself a lot of trouble. Uh, the, I don't think I can ever really take away the traumatic experiences I've had or how I feel about them or how they present in my life. I don't believe that I can ever take away some of the addiction itch that I feel, but I have absolute control over my impulses. And so on the bridge, I don't ever drive off because I've got this process around, okay, you've identified that thought and that's all it is. Right, right. 
Yeah, and I mean that is the the really scary thing about suicide is that it could be so impulsive, right? Like you have that feeling for a moment and you have to get past that moment and then everything is fine. And yeah. it sounds like you said, like you have a process for that. You mentioned being off of meds. Are you still, since you've been sober for 12 years and left that rehab facility, are you still getting therapy? Still, what are you doing to maintain your mental health? Yeah, I, well, I was on meds uh, for years after that uh, and gradually weaned off. I've been able to find some natural things that work better for me that are not, um, they don't change my personality quite as much. Uh, I, I am absolutely pro medicine. So if anybody's listening to this, I hope you don't hear me saying anti-medication things. Medication absolutely saved me and, and was a key tool to getting me here. But, um, medical marijuana really did kind of take the place of a lot of that. Uh, I use it as needed. Uh, and it has, it has been there for me the last, uh, eight, nine years. And it has really worked in, in ways that the stuff that I used to have to take all day, every day didn't. And what about, uh, any talk therapy still? Yeah. Still okay. do that on a regular still basis. A little, yep. Still do cognitive behavioral therapy. Uh, still do cognitive behavioral exercises all day long that I learned in therapy over those years. And in times of crisis, I, can usually tell that that I need something even if I feel like I'm fine you know like I'm I'm aware enough of my trajectory that if somebody dies I book a bunch of appointments and I get <laughs> I have a I have a whole thing that I do um but for the most part it's managed and you know I'm not a person in recovery who took that on as like my identity like I I don't feel like I'm a drug addict anymore. I, I moved through that behavior and, and was able to really figure out why I was medicating and and have have changed the way I interact with a lot of uh, what was making me medicate early on. Right. So I want to hear a little bit more about you, you've gotten some awards through your music and through your actions. I know in 2017 you won an award of excellence from the National Council for behavioral yeah. health, right? For all of your yeah. advocacy through your music, TV, film, and such. Can you yeah. tell us a bit about that? Yeah, the National Council is like the big behavioral health um, sort of network of all of the behavioral health hospitals and organizations in the country. Uh, and they gave me an award for artistic excellence, artistic expression uh, for my record, Adieu, which came out in 2016 and, and was really a blueprint of my journey through suicidal ideation and into recovery. It was the first time I had um, been really explicit in my artwork about my mental health condition, about my recovery. I think people had watched me be kind of wild at times, had watched things fall apart, had watched me do and say um, really intense things, and really had never, they had experienced the symptoms so publicly <laughs> over the years, but had never really I had never given them the courtesy of explaining what they had seen. Right. And so I did that in 2016. I did that. We, we went on a tour where I talked about all of the stuff that you and I just talked about on stage uh, and would sing the songs, talk a little bit about my, um, my life. And, and it was really hard. It was actually much harder than I thought it was going to be. All of those record uh, label people who we met with who were like, are you sure you want to do this? And I was so, 
offended at the time. Like as we were about halfway through that process, I was like, Oh God, this is what they meant. That's <laughs> like funny. I, you know, it was actually, it was actually hard to, to own it in such a way where I had to talk about suicide every day for a year. Um, but by the end of that year, man, I, I do feel like I came through it and, and, and sort of beat down my own internal stigma uh, which had kept me silent about it, just owning my symptoms and never really owning my condition. Yeah. Um, that that's over now, which is really great. I kind of went through the fire and, and they gave me that award, I think probably for the record, but also probably for all of that went, uh, all that went around the record. Right. That is, that's really cool. And while you found it really challenging to share your story and go around and talk about it so many times. I'm curious, did it ever feel, or in the end, would you say it was therapeutic? Yeah. And it only sucked. Uh, the, you know, it was really awesome at first. And then I started feeling it more like it was less of a story and more of like, okay, I'm going to spill my guts. And so I had to kind of build boundaries within the storytelling that, that made uh, me feel safe. Uh, but in the end, uh, after I moved through all of that, uh, absolutely. It was totally healing and saying it recontextualized it so much for me, um, where it, it does feel complete, you know, like yeah. the whole, the whole story that people had seen segments of, or had talked of, talked about sort of in snippets, uh, I did piece it all together for myself, um, and then shared that. Yeah, that's awesome. And in addition, you also, you had something to do, didn't you, with the founding of Keep Oregon Well campaign? Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I try to make uh, use of myself. One of the things that keeps me tethered to the world is a feeling of being of use. And I uh, have partnered with lots of different nonprofits, lots of different community groups around LGBT stuff, around um, the Affordable Care Act, and most recently around uh, fighting stigma and discrimination through the Keep Oregon Well. I always, you know, I have all these celebrities and rock stars and people that are, uh, I know just from the years, and uh, it's been really moving to be able to partner with those people in different ways uh, to actually, you know, start movements or help light a fire on a movement or um, just engage community around music. Uh, and healing in the same kind of ways that I engaged it in my own life. Oh, I think it's phenomenal. Tell us a little bit about the Keep Oregon Well campaign. Yeah, um, I'm. You know, I left uh, Trillium, uh, which is the uh, health, mental health system that runs that campaign. I left to go on tour with Portugal the Man. It's been a year now, but. Uh, before that, I, you know, it took us about four years to get it get it really going. It was reaching a million and a half people every week, uh, and is it was largely about um, talking to celebrities about their mental health, talking to, to um, people at shows about um, why it matters to uh, be okay with your feeling experience, and and to have those celebrities sort of bless it. You know, I you know when I was a kid had Tiffany and Debbie Gibson and new kids on the block talked about recovery or talked about, um, feeling sad or, and that that was okay. Or, or talked about being gay and that that was okay. Like all of those, uh, would have served as trauma buffers for me that those messages would have reached me in ways that the adults in my life couldn't. And I think I took that knowledge and have really centered all of my work 
uh, around that. You know, if, if you see me out in the community doing an event or you see me out in the community partnering with a nonprofit or an organization, it's because I've identified that as something I would have needed many years ago. Right. That is really cool. I know I went to their website and one of the things I noticed was about five different videos titled, what if we treated physical health as we do mental health? And they were, yeah. they were really funny. And I'm pretty sure you were in the background of the first one. Totally. Yeah. I produced those. <laughs> we did, we did a comedic web series. I, I think part of the mental health industry's uh, challenge broadly is uh, that people are really stuck in the system of how it's always been done. They're scared about HIPAA privacy. There's, you know, and I'm not talking about anybody in particular. It's just everybody. Like the whole system is is not really set up for people to feel excited to share. Um, you know, even going to therapy, right? You go to your a lot of therapist office, and people will tell you before you arrive, like park in the back and you know we have an unmarked right. office you can come in we'll we'll usher you in no one will know why you're here it's like <laughs> it's not a porn store and even if it were a porn store why are we being weird about it right like it's <laughs> right it's so strange to me and so i really came into not just that situation but any any time i'm involved with mental and behavioral health i'm trying to break down those barriers and make it normal and i yeah. figure it can also be fun and happy, right? Like why, why stop at normal? Maybe we can all actually celebrate the joy of recovery, the joy of resilience, the joy of music, and the fact that our humanity is actually made up of all these parts. There's something to be celebrated in that. And I, I will also say that with my trauma, even though this is a really tough sell often, uh, I do feel gr gratitude for my experience. I am... My brain is has a neurodiversity that has allowed me to do some pretty magical things in the world that would not have happened otherwise. And so I am in a place where I would never wish this upon myself. I would never go back in time and recreate my trauma. But I am in a place where I feel grateful for the entirety of my experience. And so um, I guess I, I'm hoping I can share that with people too, right? Like if we build enough opportunities for other people to um, safely look at, experience, interact with their own trauma, and then um, sing some songs together. Potentially, we've done the thing that, that, that people think is impossible. Yeah, I think that's a phenomenal attitude. You know, I haven't experienced the trauma you have, uh, but I feel the same way about, I've on, and I've only experienced two major bouts of depression, but they were both especially the second one, incredibly debilitating. I always say I would never wish it upon my worst enemy, and I'm serious when I say that. And at the same time, I can understand where you're coming from because it's changed the trajectory of my life. And I'm yeah. doing things like this podcast that I never would have been doing. I'm fighting to help end the stigma, which I would have never been doing. And it's humbled me. It's made me, you know, it's, I see the benefits of it. Um, and you're doing incredible, incredible work. I know you were recognized in 2018 as well by Kink FM, right? Yeah, that was cool. Yeah, that's really Portland. cool. <laughs> I know. I've, I've been just like working and living, but every now and then somebody will recognize my work and my life. And, and it's it's been really nice. They named me one of the Portland 50, which are, I forget what the tagline was, something like, people who dreamed and envisioned the uniqueness of Portland or something well, like that. Let me read it to really you cool. because I've got it okay. right here. 
great. you were great. named you were named one of the Portland Fifty, honoring people who quote dreamt, built, and championed the innovation, growth, and uniqueness of Portland. And there you go. Yeah, that's phenomenal, and it's yeah, great I, I to that. see somebody like you. Uh, you know, getting recognized for the work, getting recognized for making mental health and recovery a central piece of the incredible work you do around film, TV, music. That's really, really cool and something I hope you're very proud of. Thanks, man. Yeah, I, I those those two moments were special ones. That record being received and still being played on the radio still a couple of years later has, has been really special. Uh, and I, I do feel proud. And I also feel, I think what I feel proud of is just like um, that, that I made it so far out of my experience, right? Like that's, that stuck little boy really did escape, really is safe, really did bring his family along. And, and, and while I have some accolades in the world, those are actually the things that I feel most um, proud of. Yeah. And it's phenomenal. And you're a role model and people can see, you know, who have had similar experiences and maybe aren't as far along in their recovery that it can happen, right? You can recover, you can get through it. And nobody's saying it's easy by any stretch of the imagination, but you know, you worked hard for it. Yeah. And in the end it's, it's well, well worth it. And you're just doing amazing stuff now. Hey, uh, before we wrap up, I would love to ask you if you have any advice for somebody now who might be going through, you know, some serious depression or maybe even different traumatic pieces of their life now, what types of advice you might have for them? Yeah, I guess I would, I would only give advice to what I would, you know, based around what I would do differently for myself. And I think what I would do differently is early on, I would tell somebody I would, you know, I would tell somebody I was being hurt uh, early on in my drug addiction, I would tell the people who loved me, who were really leaning into that with me, why I was using. I would, um, I would instead of singing in code, I would, I would go to therapy. You know, like all, all of the stuff that I did around the central trauma or the central thing that was hurting me, I would let fall by the wayside. And so I guess I would say um, to get help and and to to if the first therapist sucks and they probably will, it's like dating, like just keep going, find someone else. Same with medication. If your first medicine is, is not, not working, go back, say, this is how it's making me feel. Nothing's going to be right the first time. And I think we, we set ourselves up when we expect perfection right out the gate. It's a process. And just like dating, like finding the right therapist, you're going to have to kiss a few frogs Exactly. Well, I love that advice. And it's interesting how you mentioned that it was advice you'd give yourself. I think that is such critical advice to reach out for help. Let somebody know what's going on, whether it's the abuse, whether it's um, depression, a mental illness, you know, reach out for help, share it. And I did want to just add that while you mentioned this is advice you'd give yourself, I hope that you don't live with any types of regrets. I mean, you did the best you could at the time, right? And you also yeah. know how difficult that step of reaching out is. And, totally. and now reflecting on it, you're also realizing how critical and essential it is. And the earlier you're able to do it, the better. 
Yeah, for sure, yeah. man. I appreciate that. Yeah, for sure. cool. Well, this has been awesome. I really appreciate, uh, man, there's so much to thank you for. Thank you just for the energy you put out into the universe, for totally. the, the role model you are, your music, your videos, and, and for taking time to be on The Depression Files. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Al. Appreciate it, too. All right. Well, Logan, make sure you uh, stay healthy. Likewise. Thank you for listening to The Depression Files. If you are currently suffering from depression and are experiencing thoughts of suicide, please reach out for help. In the United States, you can text 741-741 to connect with a trained crisis counselor, or you can go to suicide.org for a list of international suicide hotlines. If you enjoyed the show, please hit the like button. In addition, please leave a rating and a review on iTunes. Thank you again for listening to The Depression Files.